You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode number 166 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With last week's episode, we talked about the action at the Battle of Glendale, which took place on Monday, June 30th, 1862. Since the beginning of what came to be known as the Seven Days Campaign, Robert E. Lee had been seeking to not just push the Union Army away from Richmond, but he's also been seeking to destroy part or all of the enemy army. And many historians, looking back on the last day of June 1862, think Glendale was Robert E. Lee's best opportunity to achieve the clear-cut, decisive victory he'd been seeking. As darkness brought an end to the fighting that Monday, Robert E. Lee tried to understand why his plan had failed again. He knew that Glendale had been a golden opportunity to destroy a significant portion of the enemy army, and Lee wasn't the only one to recognize this. Years later, E. Porter Alexander was still haunted by the failure. He said, quote, When one thinks of the great chances in General Lee's grasp that one summer afternoon, it is enough to make one cry to give the story of how they were all lost. E. Porter Alexander placed most of the blame for the failure on June 30th on Stonewall Jackson, which we think is fair, but actually there was more than enough blame to go around. Longstreet and A.P. Hill, who did all of the fighting that day, can be absolved of blame, as can Magruder, who simply obeyed the series of orders he received throughout the day. Theophilus Holmes also can't be faulted for his performance, since there's simply no way his division alone could have taken Malvern Hill. Uget and Stonewall, though, have, with justification, been singled out for their failures on June 30th, and burning coals have been heaped upon their heads for their abysmal performances that day. But, honestly, most of the responsibility for the Confederate Army's failure at Glendale has to be placed upon Robert E. Lee. Lee considered Uget's assault to be the linchpin of the day's activities, since Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's forces were waiting on Uget to start the battle, and Lee could have joined Uget to make sure he got the fight started in a timely manner. But in fact, Uget was the only division commander who Lee didn't personally speak with on June 30th. Uge sent a note at noon saying he was delayed by obstructions, and Lee could have ridden over then to inspect the situation to see if he needed to alter his plan, or at least he could have sent a trusted aide to get more specifics on Uge's dilemma. 
The same is true of Stonewall Jackson. If Lee wanted to be certain that all of the separate elements of his plan were going according to his design, then he could have micromanaged a little more effectively, using couriers to get regular updates on progress and difficulties. After all, he did consider June 30th to be his best chance to win the battle he was seeking. The one part of the battlefield that Lee did take time to personally inspect was the least important. Lee rode down to Holmes' sector at 3 p.m. to see Union troops guarding their Army supply wagons passing over Malvern Hill. And Lee seemed of mixed mind about what to do here. He didn't tell Holmes to prepare for an assault on the strong enemy defensive position, but he did order Magruder to move down to the river road to prepare for just such an attack. When Magruder arrived and talked with Holmes to coordinate their actions, Holmes had no idea what Magruder was talking about, since Lee had never indicated to Holmes that an assault on Malvern Hill was to be made. Diverting Magruder that day to the river road is the most difficult decision of Lee's to understand. That morning, Lee had originally told Magruder to march down behind Longstreet and A.P. Hill to act as a reserve for them. But then he diverted Magruder to the river road, which indicates that perhaps Lee got greedy and tried to bag all of the enemy at once, both at Glendale and at Malvern Hill. He assumed that the Union rear guard would be cut off at Glendale even without Magruder's support, and must have thought that Magruder and Holmes together could carry Malvern Hill. This whole deal with Malvern Hill on June 30th is definitely difficult to understand. Lee was an engineer, and he had been an accomplished scout back in the Mexican War, so it's just hard to understand how he could look at the enemy's position at Malvern Hill and think that Holmes and Magruder could take it by storm, and that was just poor military judgment. And then after returning to Longstreet and witnessing the fighting there, Lee realized Longstreet and A.P. Hill would need support, so that's why Lee sent for half of Magruder's force to march to Glendale. At that point, Lee almost certainly realized he'd made a mistake earlier in diverting Magruder, but by then it was too late. The damage had been done. And so, through a combination of failures by Uget and Stonewall Jackson, a lack of communication, and surprisingly poor judgment by Lee, Glendale failed to be the decisive victory it could have been. Some, perhaps much of this, can be attributed to growing pains for the new army commander. Lee had already displayed a gift for coming up with clever battle plans, but he hadn't yet developed the management skills necessary to ensure that those plans were carried out. At any rate, uh, unfortunately for the Confederates, while Glendale had been a golden opportunity that was missed, the next day, July 1st, would simply be an outright disaster. On Tuesday, July 1, 1862, the Army of the Potomac, for the first time in the campaign, was united in the same spot. To a man, the Union soldiers on Malvern Hill expected the fighting would start up again sooner rather than later. They all agreed that these Confederates were relentless in their attacks. 
There was also a sense among the soldiers in blue that this next clash would be do or die, since the river was at their backs and the rebels would soon enough be in front. As they looked around, though, the Federals could see that at least Malvern Hill looked like a good place to fight. In his book, To the Gates of Richmond, Stephen W. Sears writes that, quote, Malvern Hill was not so much a hill as an elevated open plateau about a mile and a quarter north to south and three quarters of a mile wide, just under a mile north of the James and some 130 feet higher than the river. Turkey Island Creek, emptying into the James behind Malvern Hill, had two tributaries called Turkey Run and Western Run, which framed the sides of the plateau. Malvern Cliffs, the bluff-like face of the plateau on the west, overlooked Turkey Run and the River Road, where Theophilus Holmes' Confederates had been put to flight by the Yankee guns the day before. Western Run, perversely enough, ran along the eastern side of the plateau and slanted across the northern side, the direction from which the rebels would be coming. The valley of Western Run was sixty feet below Malvern Hill, but the slope from the run up to the crest of the heights was nearly half a mile long and very gradual. The course of Western Run was heavily wooded and swampy, but the ground up to the crest of Malvern Hill was entirely open. According to Fitz John Porter, who had already fought behind strong positions at Beaverdam Creek and Gaines Mill, the Malvern Hill site was, quote, better adapted for a defensive battle than any with which we had been favored, end quote. To take advantage of this favorable spot, the Union Army was arranged in a loose inverted horseshoe, that is, with the bend facing north in the direction from which the Confederates would come. The Willis Church Road coming down from Glendale bisected the plateau on its way south. From Porter's V Corps, George Sykes' division was positioned west of the road, topping Malvern Cliffs and covering the River Road. Sykes' division had turned away Holmes Rebels the day before. George Morrill's division guarded the north side of the line, extending from Sykes' division east to the Willis Church Road. His position bent around one of the two main landmarks on the battlefield, the Crew House. The other notable structure was the West House, which was located a few hundred yards to the east across the Willis Church Road. Charles Griffin's brigade was in a field north of the Crew House, with some slave cabins scattered among his lines. The brigades of John H. Martindale and Daniel Butterfield were behind and east of Griffin, with Butterfield's right flank touching the road. Darius Couch's division of Key's Fourth Corps extended the Union line east of the road. Couch arranged his three brigades in depth, that is, one behind the other, facing north, just in front of the West House. These were the brigades of Palmer, Howe, and Abercrombie. Palmer's brigade was under strength, though, since he was missing two of his regiments. Couch's right abruptly stopped in some thick woods which bordered the ravine through which flowed Western Run. Behind Couch's line and facing east were Sumner's 2nd Corps and Heinzelman's 3rd Corps. Franklin's 6th Corps was even further south, down by the James, guarding the eastern approaches of the river road. While the infantry manning the lines on the high ground made the Union position a strong one, it was the artillery crowning the plateau that made the position especially formidable. 
all of the Army of the Potomac's artillery, 268 regular pieces, and 26 big siege guns was in the vicinity and available to guard the approaches to Malvern Hill. On the narrow northern sector, facing the direction from which the rebel attacks were expected to come, seven batteries of 31 guns spread across the Willis Church Road. Further to the east, guarding the approaches from the east and northeast, were 10 batteries of about 60 guns. Another 50 or so guns were in reserve nearby, along with the heavy guns of Little Mac's siege train. Colonel Henry J. Hunt, McClellan's artillery chief, had laid out much of the federal gun line, and he knew his business. Hunt would play an instrumental role on July 1st, rotating batteries to the front to keep up a strong, steady fire. Despite the formidable defensive position held by his army, George McClellan didn't intend to share the battle with his soldiers. Little Mac rode around the lines that morning, soaking in the hearty cheers from his troops, and then he rode off to Haxel's Landing, where he sent several telegrams. Then, accompanied by Franklin, McClellan again boarded the USS Galena and steamed downriver to inspect Harrison's Landing, which he had chosen as the Army's ultimate destination. After inspecting that spot, Little Mac returned to Haxel's Landing and rode up to Malvern Hill in mid-afternoon, shortly before the battle really started to heat up. When Fitzjohn Porter expressed his confidence in holding the sector of the line facing north, he suggested McClellan tend to the eastern side of the hill, where the corps of Sumner and Heintzelman were located. Little Mac did so, positioning himself on the army's extreme right, overlooking the James, and remained there, on that distant flank, as far as possible from the scene of combat, and as a result, he took no substantial part in the ensuing battle. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As Stephen Sears points out in To the Gates of Richmond, the strength of the Malvern Hill position was at the same time its potential weakness. 
The northern end of the plateau was only 1,200 yards wide, and although it was guarded by a strong gun line and the divisions of Morrill and Couch, only so many cannon and so many men could be pressed into such a narrow front. If this relatively narrow front should be stormed and overwhelmed by a determined attacker, as had happened at Gaines Mill, then the Union line could be broken. But if the Confederates were to break the Union line at Malvern Hill through a frontal assault, it would take a great deal of skill and coordination. A successful assault would certainly suffer heavy casualties, and then would also have to withstand the inevitable counterattacks from the several nearby Federal divisions which could rush forward units to block the rebel breakthrough. It would indeed be a remarkable achievement if Robert E. Lee, after a week of trying, could finally inflict a crushing defeat on the enemy army, but he'd have to be at the top of his game to do so here at Malvern Hill. However, on July 1st, at the end of what had so far been a frustrating and disappointing week for Robert E. Lee, the Confederate Army commander was not at his physical best. He had not slept well or long any night since the start of the campaign, and he felt fatigued and generally ill on Tuesday. The bitter disappointment over the last two days had certainly not helped his condition. In fact, he felt so out of sorts on July 1st that he asked Longstreet to accompany him in case Old Pete had to assume command of the army. While D.H. Hill and Longstreet later claimed that Lee remained composed even in light of all the army's missteps and misfortunes, Lee wasn't able to entirely mask his frustration. When Jubal Early, just recovered from a wound he'd received nearly two months earlier, reported to Lee for assignment on the morning of July 1st and commented that it looked as if McClellan might slip away from them, Lee snapped irritably, Yes, he will get away, because I cannot have my orders carried out. Lee and Longstreet rode south until they came to Willis Methodist Church. There they met D.H. Hill, who had been doing some scouting. Hill had been talking with a chaplain who hailed from the local area and quizzing him about what the ground looked like at Malvern Hill. He didn't like what he heard when he learned that the spot was an imposing position, and he repeated the chaplain's warnings to Lee and suggested, If General McClellan is there in strength, we had better let him alone. At that, Longstreet chuckled and said, Don't get scared now that we have got him whipped. Well, the prickly hill almost certainly didn't appreciate that kind of joking, but he apparently held his tongue and made no reply. Though Longstreet had lost half his division during the week of fighting, he was convinced that the Union Army was demoralized and focused only on escape. The never-ending retreating indicated that McClellan's army was shattered in spirit and ripe for the taking of pressed hard. Robert E. Lee wanted badly to believe that as well, and so he moved his army into position to try to hit the fleeing Federals one last time in order to destroy them. D.H. Hill later said, quote, It was this belief in the demoralization of the Federal Army that made our leader risk the attack. During the early morning hours after sunrise on July 1st, Stonewall Jackson's force crossed the White Oak Swamp and moved south through Glendale. As he came to the crossroads there, he met the vanguard of Magruder's command. 
Magruder and Jackson soon met up and then rode south to meet Lee, whom they found on the Willis Church Road. Lee had decided that Tuesday's attack would be carried out by the troops of Magruder, Uget, and Jackson because they had seen no significant fighting the previous day. Lee spoke to Magruder and Jackson directly about their roles. Stonewall was to lead with his force down the east side of the Willis Church Road, while Magruder would follow Jackson and position his men to the west of the road. The problem with Lee's orders, and it was a big one, was that he referred to the Willis Church Road as the Quaker Road because that's how it was labeled on all of his maps. But in reality, the real Quaker Road was about two miles to the west. This was yet another example of confusing maps that plagued the Confederates during the entire campaign. And this instance would have particularly bad consequences as Magruder used several local guides and they naturally took him toward the real Quaker Road rather than the Willis Church Road as Lee intended. Also missing on Lee's maps was another road about a mile east of Willis Church Road that ran largely parallel to it. It had been used by some of the Federal supply wagons, and it would have possibly provided a better flanking approach to Malvern Hill for Stonewall Jackson's troops. At any rate, while Stonewall Jackson and Magruder left to conduct their troops in what turned out to be opposite directions, Lee sent Longstreet to ride over to scout the west side of the Willis Church Road while he personally scouted the east. Lee wanted to see if there was indeed a workable opportunity for attacking the enemy position at Malvern Hill. James Longstreet saw real possibilities as he emerged onto the north end of the clearing that faced the Union lines. Old Pete arrived where two of Uget's brigades under Armistead and Wright had already appeared. Armistead and Wright had emerged on a plateau just north of the enemy's Malvern Hill position and equal in height to the Union lines across the way. Between the two was a valley that was 60 feet deep and that sloped up nearly 1,000 yards to the Union lines. Longstreet scouted the position and thought the plateau was the key to winning the day. Longstreet believed that the rebels could fit 60 artillery pieces on the plateau behind Armistead. Longstreet reasoned that if a similar position existed east of the road, and in fact there was one, then massing the Confederate artillery at both spots would mean the Yankees would be caught in a powerful and smashing crossfire. A strong infantry attack that went in right on the heels of such a bombardment could carry the enemy position and perhaps administer the decisive blow that Lee had been seeking. As he was scouting the plateau, Longstreet encountered Magruder, who had ridden to the same spot to observe the terrain. Longstreet was amazed that Prince John's troops were marching away from the battlefield. Magruder felt some unease about this also, but his guides had assured him they were going to the only Quaker road in the area. Magruder, however, offered to turn around on Longstreet's order, but Old Pete wasn't prepared to override Robert E. Lee's instructions, so Magruder's men continued their errant march. Longstreet sent a message to Lee reporting the possibility of massing guns here on Armistead's plateau, and he also told the army commander about Magruder's apparently mistaken march. Lee agreed with Longstreet's idea concerning the artillery, and he also dispatched an aide to show Magruder the proper route. While Magruder's troops were retracing their steps, 
Longstreet was supposed to locate batteries to send to Armistead's plateau to take part in the artillery barrage. Meanwhile, Stonewall Jackson's troops were filing into position, and Robert E. Lee was scouting on the Confederate left. Lee decided that a plateau near the Poindexter farm on Jackson's side of the road would serve as an excellent position to mass artillery to complement the gun line that Longstreet was to build on the rebel right. Lee explained his plan to his aide, R.H. Chilton, and instructed him to draft an order that was to be sent to Lee's lieutenants. Unfortunately, Chilton continued his habit of writing imprecise orders. Sometime before 1 p.m., Chilton wrote the following order, quote, Batteries have been established to act upon the enemy's line. If it is broken, as is probable, Armistead, who can witness the effect of the fire, has been ordered to charge with a yell. Do the same, end quote. Well, needless to say, there were problems with this ambiguous order. There was no time listed on it, so no one could be sure precisely when it was drawn up. It placed the burden of launching the Army's attack on the shoulders of one Brigadier General, Louis Armistead, who was leading his brigade into battle for the first time, and designating a yell as the signal for the attack was just foolish, since it's unlikely it would ever be heard across the entire battlefield over the sound of musketry and cannon fire. All in all, for an assault that was perhaps his last chance to smash the enemy army, Robert E. Lee should have drafted the key attack order himself, or at the very least, proofread Chilton's draft to minimize confusion. But he didn't, and there's no clear reason why. Some historians argue that exhaustion, and the fact he wasn't feeling well, clouded Lee's judgment. At one point in the afternoon, Lee fell asleep, and Jefferson Davis, who had ridden out from Richmond again, prevented anyone from disturbing the general. Perhaps Lee meant the order to be discretionary, that is, contingent only on the clear success of the artillery barrage. Obviously, if a major attack was to be launched, Lee as the army commander should have been the one to decide when. If Lee's order was exactly as he intended, then his place was with Armistead, so that he, Lee, could personally observe the effect of the barrage and decide if and when the time for the infantry attack was right. The fact that Lee later rode off to the Confederate left looking for other possibilities suggests that he didn't consider the order to be binding, but rather contingent on the, on the artillery bombardment's success. To top it off, the order was sent only to division commanders, so Armistead never received a copy and was completely unaware of the pivotal role that he was to play in the attack. As we'll see next week, Lee's attack on Malvern Hill wouldn't occur after a successful artillery barrage. In fact, in the unsparing assessment of D.H. Hill, the Confederate artillery's performance here was embarrassing. Inadequate numbers, bad communication, and even worse military judgment resulted in the rebel artillery's poor performance. It also didn't help that the Confederates themselves acknowledged that their artillery was of inferior size and quality to the Union guns across the way. Stonewall Jackson faced a shortage of batteries near at hand. 
D.H. Hill's artillery had exhausted its ammunition in the useless barrage that Jackson had ordered at White Oak Swamp the previous day. Therefore, Hill's seven batteries wouldn't be available for this fight. That left ten remaining batteries, but these were divided throughout Stonewall's remaining three divisions, and so couldn't be brought forward and concentrated quickly. Miscommunication also played a role. The Army had an artillery reserve of six batteries under William N. Pendleton. However, there's no record that Lee ever sent for Pendleton to bring those guns up, even though their utilization would have seemed logical for the creation of the two grand batteries that Lee and Longstreet envisioned. For his part, Pendleton spent much of Tuesday trying to track down Lee to see where he could best be utilized. He never found Lee, though, and so Pendleton and his batteries remained idle all day. Additionally, there were several available batteries of Longstreet's, A.P. Hill's, and Magruder's that were never brought forward into the battle. Well, you guys can count that as foreshadowing, since, as Tracy said, now that we've set the stage for the battle, it'll be next week that we'll look at the lopsided gun duel that ensued when the Confederates brought their artillery up, And then we'll look at the unfortunate rebel infantry attacks against the Union defenses atop Malvern Hill. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Voices of the Civil War, The Seven Days, by the editors of Time Life Books. Every once in a while, we have someone ask us about the quotes we use at the start of the battle episodes, and just this past week, we had another one of those questions, and we realized we'd never made one of these books a recommendation before. But by and large, we have been using this Voices of the Civil War series from Time Life as the source uh, where we get those quotes. A lot of people are familiar with the more popular series of Civil War books put out by Time Life. You know, the ones with the silver covers that um, cover the entire scope of the war. But fewer people are aware that Time Life also put out another Civil War series that covers most of the major battles and campaigns of the war, but this series focuses on providing first-hand accounts by the soldiers who fought in those battles and campaigns. And sometimes, less often, there are also passages from letters or diaries of civilians caught up in or affected by the fighting. Anyway, being from Time Life, the books are of excellent production quality, as you'd expect, and it really is fascinating to read through these first-hand accounts and get the participants' perspective on what happened. And it's always exciting for us to match up some of these accounts with what we find in the narratives of the battles in our other resources. And Tracy and I think it's really important to include these first-hand quotes, since it's one thing to tell you that the 11th Alabama charged the Union cannon, but it's another thing entirely to share a quote from someone who was actually on the receiving end of that charge. Or we can tell you that the Confederates ransacked the Federal Supply Depot, but it's another thing to read a quote from a rebel who was there and who expressed amazement at the abundance and variety of the Yankee supplies, especially when contrasted with what was available to the Confederate troops. Well, anyway, that's a very long-winded explanation for this episode's book recommendation. 
Voices of the Civil War, The Seven Days, by the editors of Time Life Books. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the podcast Facebook page and Twitter feed. And then we just about have the next members episode ready to release. Uh, But don't forget, there are now already 40 of those shows that we've released just for the members of the Strawfoot Brigade. And you become a member by signing up on the website and through PayPal. And by supporting the podcast in that way, you guys really are making sure that the show keeps going. And we want to thank Denny and Leo for being the latest volunteers to join the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade this past week. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us next time when we look at the action at the Battle of Malvern Hill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.